Hello, friends. Wherever you are joining us from today, we are just so thankful that you could take part of this Easter online liturgy because today we are celebrating incredibly good news. You know, a friend sent me an article a while ago, and it was entitled, Interesting But Useless News. And this is some of the interesting but useless news that was listed in it. Most car horns honk in the key of F. Interesting. Donald Duck's middle name is Fauntleroy. Who knew? And then finally, the fingerprints of a koala bear are virtually indistinguishable from those of human beings, so much so that they could be confused at a crime scene. Interesting, right? but pretty much useless news. In contrast, one of my favorite news websites has a section called News You Can Use. And that suggests that there's news you can know. It might even be interesting. But then there's news that you can actually use. And this Easter, I'm going to spare all of you mere news that you can know. And I want to share together news that you can truly use. Now, you don't have to live very long in this world to learn that good news rarely comes from a graveyard. But on the day that brings us all together today, that is precisely what happened. Against all odds, good news bursts forth from a sealed tomb, and Jesus of Nazareth is resurrected from the dead. And his resurrection, it rocked the world. And that's why this weekend is the pinnacle of our church year. In fact, if the event that we remember and celebrate this weekend didn't actually occur, we wouldn't exist as a church. There'd be no reason for us to meet. That's how central the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to our very existence. So really, regardless of what your evaluation is of Jesus this Easter, I mean, whether you see him as just some vague religious leader or maybe an admirable moral teacher or perhaps even as your own Lord and Savior, I'd like each of us to leave our time here today clear on some declarations about the resurrection of Jesus and what that resurrection can bring to you. Now, in the limits of our time, we can't really cover it all, so we're just going to look at three declarations about Jesus' resurrection. And they're really simple, but I'd suggest they are enormously impactful. Three declarations that really can mean the world. They can mean life or death to me and you. Okay, so here we go. First declaration, the resurrection actually happened. The resurrection actually happened. And this is important because in our day, often, there are very different kinds of ideas float around about Easter. And different explanations are given for what actually happened to Jesus. For example, some suggest that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, but rather he just fainted or swooned, it said. So he didn't rise from the dead but rather he simply regained consciousness. 
You know, several years ago, Warren Wiersbe, who was a noted Bible teacher, he received an email with this question. Dr. Wiersbe, our preacher said on Sunday, this Easter, that Jesus didn't die, but he just fainted or swooned on the cross, and the disciples nurtured him back to health. What do you think, sincerely, bewildered? And Dr. Wiersbe wrote back with his tongue firmly planted in cheek, Dear Bewildered, may I suggest, beat your preacher with a cat of nine tails worth 39 heavy strokes, nail him to a cross, hang him in the sun for three hours, run a spear through his heart, embalm him, put him in a nearly airless tomb for 36 hours, and see what happens. Or another idea that you might hear goes something like this. Jesus probably existed. He was probably a really good man, probably a great teacher, but he was just a man. So when he died, people missed him, and, and some of the people felt like his spirit was still lingering with them. They still felt his presence in some way. So really, that turned into mythical stories about a resurrection, kind of folklore kind of stuff. But because in the ancient world, people were really naive, some people took that folklore story literally. And therefore, stories about Jesus' resurrection should be understood as being just symbolic, just really figurative. It's just uh, really a mythical story about the power of hope, about the way life has a way of re-emerging. But I want us to be clear that for the New Testament writers, the resurrection never meant that. It was never understood just in a symbolic way. I mean, to a person, they taught about Jesus' resurrection as something that actually happened in history. And this is, this is critical to understand. In fa fact, for example, in the Gospel of Luke, listen to how Luke, and again, Luke was a medical doctor, listen to how Luke describes all that he's written in the Gospel. This is in Luke chapter 1, and I remind you, friends, this is a word of God. And Luke writes this, beginning in verse 1. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. Note that word. That you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Okay, so what Luke is saying is, all right, what I've recorded here, it's just not my ideas. It's from eyewitnesses, and you can have certainty about that. Okay, so what? Well, there's a Cambridge scholar. His name is Dr. Richard Baucom, a brilliant guy, and he wrote really a fascinating book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And he explains in the book how in the ancient world, ancient Rome, ancient Israel, ancient Greece, there were historians who were quite serious about writing history, about describing what actually and truly happened. And really, it was a very different genre, even in that time, from myth or folklore. And these historians, they believed that writing serious history, it depended on talking to eyewitnesses who were still alive, who had actually experienced, hopefully even been participants in the event or the war or whatever they were going to write the history of. 
So really understand this. The ancient historical record we have that you really studied in school, that is built on eyewitness testimony assembled by ancient historians like Suetonius and Seneca, Pliny, Cassius, many others who were serious about their historical research. And they listed eyewitnesses to say, okay, you can check this information out. Here are the witnesses to all this. Okay, now we see that same dynamic at work in the Gospels. The importance of these are stories that are drawn from eyewitnesses. And we just read one example here in the Gospel of Luke, but it's present, really, throughout the New Testament writings. For example, another example, if you go to the Gospel of Mark, and, and Mark says this in Mark chapter 15. In chapter 15 and verse 20, Mark says, they led Jesus out to crucify him, and they compelled a pa passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Okay, so Mark notes that there's this man, Simon. And now Simon was a really common name in ancient Israel. And so Mark really wants to clarify who this Simon is. And so he explains it's Simon who's from Cyrene. And then to further clarify who he is, he notes that this Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. So why in the world would Mark include that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus? Because they were still living. So Mark was saying, these guys are still alive. And if you don't believe me, you can ask them and check it out because this actually happened. And that matters. And we see the same dynamic at work of eyewitness testimony in another really striking part of the Gospels. And, and this is quite interesting, I think. All four of the Gospels, and they're written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But all four of the Gospels and their accounts of Jesus' life, they include the names of eyewitnesses who saw the empty tomb and heard the message, Jesus has risen. And in every Gospel, the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' empty tomb were women. Now, we wouldn't tend to think much about that, but that would be very very striking in this ancient world. Because in the ancient world, women were not regarded as credible witnesses. In fact, in ancient Israel and ancient Rome, women generally were not allowed to serve as eyewitnesses in judicial court. They couldn't legally give testimony in a court. But men could. Cool. So with that in mind, Listen to another passage, again, from the Gospel of Luke. And Luke's writing about the resurrection, and listen to what he writes. This is in Luke 24, and, and as we read it, notice the names that are listed. In verse 10, he says, Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things about Jesus' resurrection to the apostles. But these words seemed to them, them being the men, the apostles, an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Can you believe there was a time where men were slow to take women seriously? Well, the women said, Jesus Christ is risen. And the men said, no, fake news. Way, way back then. 
it really wasn't until some of these men actually saw the risen Jesus that they learned to take this news seriously. Okay, so here's the point. If the stories of the resurrection were just made-up stories, trying to convince gullible people about some symbolic myth, the writers here would have never said it was women who were the eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And yet every single gospel, it is women who are listed as the first eyewitnesses. So the only sensible reason why women are listed as the eyewitnesses is that, in fact, they were the eyewitnesses. Because nobody could have or would have made that up. But the biblical writers were taking the historicity of the resurrection very seriously. They wanted to be accurate in what they recorded. So really, whatever you may think about these gospel accounts, understand, they were presenting the resurrection as something that truly happened. Why was that important? Well, because of the next, second declaration. And the second declaration is just this. The resurrection changed everything. It changed everything. It really is. It's the hinge of history. I mean, to this day, we date human history by the life of that one man who lived and died and was raised again. I mean, in a word, although any single word is inadequate, it is just amazing. It's amazing. Okay, now, we have all these moments in our lives where we think or might even say, amazing. But they typically don't change things a whole lot. I mean, I remember back when I was just out of college and I first drove out from Chicago to Colorado with some friends, and for the first time I saw the Rocky Mountains. And just amazing to see that. Or, or think about your first paycheck. I remember getting my first paycheck and, and that response of, amazing. And then I saw how much the government took out in taxes. Amazing. And then the Chicago Cubs, they win the World Series, proving there is a God. And that God is very good. Amazing. <laughs> I mean, we all have amazing moments. But often they come and go. And the world just keeps right on going. Our problems keep right on going. Life and death keep right on going. So once there was a man named Jesus, and he came and taught like no one had ever taught that God is real and that God is loving, and that God is more loving than the most loving father or mother you could even imagine, and that God cares about you that a sparrow can't even fall from its nest without God knowing, because God cares. And that God is infinitely good, that God is concerned about justice. So from all that, there's this amazing movement. But then Jesus dies. And the movement, understand, it died with him. I mean, do we understand that on Saturday, there was nothing left of Jesus' movement. It was over. But then Sunday, it was on. I think a lot of people don't really understand or get this. 
That, that's why this Christian faith is quite unusual among faiths in this way. It is the only faith, really, that didn't develop kind of gradually, incrementally over time. One day, it didn't exist. And then the next day, it did exist. And people were ready to die for it. In fact, as a matter of historical record, they did die for it. But Jesus was so matter-of-fact about this resurrection, even though it caused the birth of the church. In fact, we're told in Matthew's gospel account of Jesus, this beautiful story, Matthew 28. Love how it's expressed in verse 8. It says, The women departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And then they ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. <laughs> I just love how understated Jesus is here. Like, greetings. <laughs> just like, what's up? And then verse 9. And they came up and took hold of his feet. And notice this word. They worshipped him. I mean, yesterday, he was a crucified criminal. He was a failed messiah. And today, he's Lord of the universe, and they worship him. In his way, that way of servanthood and humility and self-sacrifice and love, it wasn't thwarted by a cross. In fact, it turned the cross into the most recognizable symbol in human history. So you don't have to live in fear anymore. You don't have to live in defeat anymore. I mean, nations rise and fall, civilizations come and go, and yet the shadow of this one man still impacts the human race 2,000 years later, like no other. Because through his resurrection, he changed everything. And that power of that resurrected Jesus, it can be at work in your life. And really that leads to our third great declaration, which is just this. The resurrection is an invitation. It's an invitation to you. Because whatever is going on in your life, we all face this wonder of being born and then, eventually, having our lives come to an end. You know, biblical writers talk a lot about this. And in fact, this is from a book in the New Testament called The Letter to the Hebrews. And listen to what is recorded there. This is in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9 and verse 27. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those, to bring deliverance, healing, forgiveness to those who are eagerly waiting for him. Eagerly waiting for him. So are you waiting for him? You know, here's the truth about you. The, the biggest amazement of your existence has not yet come. Because the most amazing moment in your life will be that moment after you die. I mean, we don't talk about that much, but it's good to think about that now and again. Especially at Easter. Because it will come to everybody. You know, there's an old, old story. Maybe you've heard it before. 
this little kid comes running out of his bedroom and he says to his mother, Mom, is it true that from dust we're made and to dust we return? And she says, yeah, why do you ask? And he says, well, I was just looking under my bed and someone is either coming or going. Someone is always either coming or going. I mean, this moment will come into your life when your life here comes to a close and then something amazing will happen. You know, a few years ago, I stood at the bedside of a man who had been part of our church family here for a long time. He was really, it turned out to be, in the last hours of his life. And the last thing he said to me when I was leaving him was, I'll see you in paradise. Imagine that moment. That will be your moment. Or, the Bible says, you'll face an eternity without God. And God doesn't want anyone to face that. And so he says, I will give you my grace and my love and my forgiveness for where you've messed up in life as just a free gift. And I'll be part of your life every moment that you walk and live. I'll be guiding you, strengthening you. And then you can be with me forever, for all of eternity, after you die. So if you turn in faith to Jesus Christ, if you submit to him as your Lord and King, that one moment after you die, you'll not only be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, you'll be celebrating the resurrection of you. Amazing. You know what? We often exchange that little liturgy at Easter where one person will say, Jesus Christ is risen, and the other will respond, he is risen indeed. Perhaps another way we could put that is one says, Jesus Christ is risen, and the other responds, amazing. <laughs> because it is. Because the death and resurrection of Jesus means that sin, your sin, is forgiven. And that death, your death, is taken care of. And that you can have hope. You can have purpose. You can have meaning. You will have a message. You will have a destiny. And that love is triumphed over hate. And not just that. Not just that. It also means that creation itself is going to be redeemed. Can you imagine what that will look like? And that suffering will be repealed. That every loss is going to be restored. And that God himself will wipe away every tear from every sorrowing eye. And that sickness and sadness and grieving and mourning and pain and weeping will be no more. Because that moment will come. It will surely come. And it will come for one reason. Because of one event in history that actually happened. And that's the invitation. That's what we celebrate on Easter. This amazing absolutely astounding grace because the resurrection truly happened and it changed everything and it is an invitation. It's an invitation to each one of us. So here's the critical question. How do you receive the transforming gifts that are offered through Jesus' resurrection? Well, the Bible says Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 
And by believing, it doesn't just mean you believe he existed or you believed he was a good teacher. It means you put your faith, your hope in him. You submit to, you trust in him. That's what it means. Because you need to decide who or what you will commit your one and only life to. You know, maybe it's the first time you've joined in a church liturgy like this in a while, maybe ever. And maybe even your head's kind of just spinning with a lot of questions. And I'd encourage you to at least make one decision right now. Just decide, I'll keep seeking. I'll keep seeking. And we'd love to have you join with us as we together here seek answers and understanding together. But for some of you, this is a time to turn to Jesus as Lord, to put your faith in him, to really invite him into your life. And you can do that really simply. You can just do that today. It's a decision, truly, you can make right now. You don't have to be fuzzy about this. So before our worship team shares another song of joyful worship to our God together, I'm going to say a prayer. And really, I'm going to say the words out loud. And if it reflects your heart, I just invite you, wherever you are, just in a silent prayer in your heart, to echo the words I express. Really to just say, okay, God in Jesus Christ, I want this new life. I want a new relationship with you. I want the hope of eternity. I put my faith in Jesus. So if that's your heart, and really for all of us, could you just bow your head with me as I lead us in prayer? And again, if this is your heart, just echo it silently. Heavenly Father, I know that you made me. And I understand that you love me. And in this moment, I acknowledge I've not submitted to you in my life. I've sinned and I'm bound by it. So now, God, at this moment, today I place my trust in Jesus Christ. I accept your love. I accept your forgiveness. I accept the grace you offer me. I want to submit my life to you. And I ask from this moment on for you to be my Lord, my leader, my friend. And I pray this, God, in Jesus' name, amen.